This is Space Time, Series 27, Episode 26, for broadcast on the 26th of February, 2024. Coming up on Space Time, Odysseus touches down at the lunar South Pole. An out-of-control European satellite re-enters Earth's atmosphere. And Blue Origin's new heavy-lift rocket, the new Glenn, reaches the launch pad. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. A private company has for the first time successfully landed a spacecraft on the moon. Houston-based Intuitive Machines have confirmed that their Nervous Sea Odysseus lander is on the ground and upright at the lunar south pole. Well, almost. An updated statement the next day pointed out that Odysseus descended three times faster than expected and it was also moving slightly to one side at the moment of touchdown. That apparently caused the lander to catch one of its six legs onto the lunar surface and tip over onto its side. Also, the spacecraft was programmed to land in a crater named Malaport A, around 300 kilometres from the moon's south pole. Instead, it wound up in Schamberger Crater, some 200 kilometres uprange from the intended landing site, at an altitude of approximately 10 kilometres. Still, it is the first lunar touchdown by any commercially manufactured and operated vehicle, and the first by an American spacecraft in 52 years. The landing capped off a nail-biting final approach, descent and touchdown, during which problems surfaced with the spacecraft's autonomous navigation system, requiring engineers to activate an untested workaround at the last minute. There are also ongoing communications issues with the spacecraft, leaving mission managers in limbo for some time as to its exact fate, some 384,000 kilometres from home. Mission Control were only getting very faint signals from the lander's high-gain antenna. They knew it was on the ground, but were uncertain as to its precise condition and position. Did the vehicle land softly as hoped, or did it come down hard and maybe crash? If we encounter a communications challenge, how difficult it is to land on the moon and continually have those communications. Folks talking about using the Goonhilly Earth Station dish in the UK to do a sweep, looking for that signal, that autonomous process of the lander reassigning itself somewhere that it believes is safe. The HRN camera was functioning and able to make those decisions after what was a two-hour orbit of problems problem-solving with Intuitive Machines' TRN and HRN cameras, the laser rangefinders assigned to those. Those are the ones that Intuitive Machines installed inside the navigation pods. The laser rangefinders were not activated. We went to NASA and asked to use two of the laser beams on the navigation Doppler LiDAR. That's right. And spent two hours in orbit. Team, we're going to confirm our pointing vector with our antenna for post-landing. Yep. We spent about two hours in orbit to solve that problem. We got good readings on the way down. And right now, we we are working to confirm communications on the surface of the moon, that is the South Pole region of the moon. That's right. What we do know is the power descent and initiation. We were following along in the status calls. We executed a pitch over maneuver and we're counting down the clock to a landing time uh, of 5.23 p.m. Central Time. Working on the communications component to confirm data from the lander. Check the status of Nova C and the data that they were receiving here in Nova Control to confirm landing. Part of that is communications. We're standing by. Fido MD on IM1. Yeah, I'm looking at our uh, phase plane there for the, the last part of the flight. 
looks like we had excellent pitch and yaw control throughout, but it did see a little bit of a roll excursion. Could it be that we landed off uh, off angle and roll in the final phase? So I do see we had up to an eight degree excursion. Um, we're about to begin the, the roll maneuver, which is terminal phase. The terminal phase, which is a, a large roll maneuver to get to the landing attitude. That's the latest, last data point I have. Um, but up until that point, we were we were really solid. Right. So terminal phase begins at 30 meters um, or post HDA. Post HDA. Post HDA. 400 meters. Very good. And that's a great conversation, confirming, talking about the attitude of the lander, making sure that those antennas are within direct line of sight with Earth stations. Mission director at all stations are also updating our pointing vector with our dishes to make sure that they're tuned in on our final landing site. There's a call. We're searching for that communications back to the ground station. This one particularly is in the UK that's tracking us. And it's important to note, Gary, that we have an entire network dedicated to working these communications problems. It's been active this entire mission. And the largest, most powerful dish out of all of them is about a 64-meter dish in Australia. That time to search with that opportunity with the largest, most powerful dish, we're looking at about 12 to 13 hours after our estimated touchdown. So this is a process that we could be looking and searching for the lander signal for confirmation uh, for quite some time, but we're going to continue to listen in and stand by as our flight controllers are working with the ground station in the United Kingdom to work this issue, work this problem. It's another challenge, very similarly to the challenge solved just to make it this far. Science of life, we have a return signal we're tracking. We have an onboard fault detection system for our communications that after 15 minutes with lack of communication will power cycle the radios and then after that for another 15 minutes it will then switch antenna pairs so we have some time here to evaluate we do have signal that we're tracking. So we'll see what happens. There's a great call out about the autonomous systems installed on our Nova C-Class lunar lander named Odysseus. The process he's mentioning, Gary, is very similar to the one that we were preparing ourselves for at AOS, to where the lander has systems in place to recycle its antennas, to switch antenna pairs. And that was very similar to what we thought we were going to need to do after acquisition of signal. When we separated from the second stage of the launch vehicle, if we made it to a certain point, the lander was autonomously programmed to start taking matters into its own hands, and that was the information that our mission director, Dr. We're not Tim dead yet. <laughs> We're also not dead yet. And the key here is patience. It's 5.34 p.m. Mission director Tim Crane confirming that it could take two phases of 15-minute increments to confirm the status of a landing. So we could be here, and we'll stand by and monitor as Nova Control continues to work this issue. Yeah, tense moments inside of mission control with the most qualified folks. We're picking we up a signal from our high-gain antenna and um, transmitter. It's faint, but it's there. So stand by, folks. We'll see what's happening here. All right, we're going to continue to stand by. It sounds like we are getting some kind of faint I signal. I want to send a series of commands to reactivate, make sure we're transmitting to keep the quasonics active. We're still standing by. The last call from Mission Director Dr. Tim Crane was that we were getting a faint signal from Odysseus's high-gain antenna. All stations, this is uh, Mission Director on IM-1. We're evaluating uh, how we can refine that signal and uh, dial in the pointing for our dishes. At first, Intuitive Machines Mission Director Tom Crane could only say that the equipment was on the surface of the moon. 
but after more troubleshooting of the issue, flight controllers confirmed Odysseus had touched down and was sending back data to Earth. What we can confirm, without a doubt, is our equipment is on the surface of the moon and we are transmitting. So congratulations, IM team. We'll see how much more we can get from that. Excellent call from our mission director, Empty Dr. Prime Tim on, Crane. Uh, IM one. And over Go to our prime. CEO, Steve Alters. Yeah, if I could just pass on a few words to the entire team in uh, Intuitive Machines at Superbab and here in the, here in the uh, mission control. Uh, what an outstanding effort. I know this was a nail biter, but we are on the surface and we are transmitting and uh, welcome to the moon. One of the problems is that Odysseus was never designed to provide live feed of the landing, which came a day after the spacecraft reached lunar orbit and a week after its launch from Florida aboard a Falcon 9 rocket. Glenn Nagel from NASA's Deep Space Communications Complex near Canberra says the descent and landing were incredibly exciting and a bit nerve-wracking. It definitely was an exciting descent and landing, but that uh, landing was 12 minutes before they actually got any kind of signal from the spacecraft to say that it had touched down and was capable of communicating back to Earth. So, yeah, a bit of a sweaty palm moment. And what role did Canberra's Deep Space Communications Network play in this mission? So, for the Deep Space Network, we were actually asked to support one of NASA's experiments, Lunar Node 1, which is going to act as the beginnings of a GPS-like system for positioning and navigation at the moon for future robotic and human missions. But, of course, importantly, for intuitive machines and the Odysseus spacecraft, they were using a a commercial network around the world of antennas to provide their communication and tracking services. And here in Australia, of course, the CSRO's Muriang Parks Radio Telescope, the DISH, played a role in that endeavour. And hopefully we'll also be receiving some of those first images and data from that spacecraft during its week of operations on the surface of the moon. I guess it shows that intuitive machines can deliver. Yeah, absolutely. And to be the first successful US private company to actually end on the surface of the moon is a remarkable achievement. And of course, it's just the beginning of a whole range of new missions that they're planning for even later this year. At least three more missions heading to the moon this year, all of them by private companies. Yeah, and it's really the opening up of a whole new lunar economy, as they now refer to it. It's kind of like the same way the aviation industry went over 100 years ago with few initial magnificent men in their flying machines and then government-supported developments of aircraft and then, of course, into the private sector, taking passengers and cargo around the world that we're so used to today. And here we are at that point point now with the space sector, with commercial companies now providing the cargo services, they're even providing the services to take astronauts into space. And of course, that allows the big government agencies to be able to then do more with the money that they have. At this stage, when will we see humans orbiting the moon again? So at the moment, Artemis 2 is still slated for September of 2025 to take Reed Wiseman, Jeremy Hansen, Victor Glover and Christina Cook into lunar orbit. So if that mission goes as planned and they're successful, then Artemis 3 will follow along probably in the next couple of years following that and hopefully place boots back on the surface of the moon again. They won't be going straight to the moon. Instead, they'll enter a cislunar orbit and hopefully transfer to a starship from SpaceX for the final descent and, and landing. Yeah, so that's the plan certainly that NASA has currently, not only with SpaceX acting as a commercial partner, but for later missions, companies like Blue Origin and others to supply that ongoing transport service. And this is really, again, part of that lunar economy, changing the way we've done things over the last 50 or 60 years in space flight and taking the chance to have governments just buy services rather than trying to do that themselves. And of course, Blue Origin rolled out their new Glenn just last week to make sure it fits the launch pad on 36 at the Cape. Yes, this is their first test tank vehicle and they will do a whole range of pad tests with it, little dress rehearsals or the processes it will take. And then Paul goes, well, 
later this year, they'll roll out the actual article, and we may see another one of these reusable rockets entering the space game through Blue Origin. It's certainly a change in the space industry now from expendable to reusable, even closer to home. Rocket Lab are looking at reusing electron rockets. Yeah, so they've already reflown some of their engines from past rockets that have flown and descended back and flashed down the ocean. They've recovered other parts of the spacecraft to return. And of course, they've just had a recent great success data capsule returning samples from space after a year out there testing medical sciences and other materials. That's Glenn Nagel from NASA's Deep Space Communications Network in Canberra. Only four other countries have successfully landed on the moon, the former Soviet Union, China, India, and most recently, Japan last month. Odysseus is carrying a suite of seven scientific instruments and technology demonstrators for NASA, as well as equipment for several commercial customers. They're all designed to operate for seven days on solar energy before the sun sets over the polar landing site. This is Space Time. Still to come, NASA tests new spacecraft systems aboard the Odysseus lunar lander and an out-of-control European satellite re-enters Earth's atmosphere. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Among the many systems being tested aboard the intuitive machine's Nova Sea lander is a new type of fuel gauge designed to work in the microgravity conditions of space. It's easy to measure fuel tanks here on Earth where gravity pulls liquid to the bottom. But in space, the game changes. Quantifying fuel that's floating around inside a spacecraft's tank isn't so simple. The lack of any gravity means fuel doesn't settle to the bottom of the propellant tanks Instead, it clinks to the walls, or it tends to form bubbles that could be anywhere in the tank. And that makes it really challenging to understand exactly how much propellant you have left within your tank. And that can be really important to maximise your mission duration and plan how much you need for a specific manoeuvre. And this is where NASA's new radio frequency mass gauge could be crucial. The gauge will be used on future long-duration missions relying on spacecraft fueled with cryogenic propellants like liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen or liquid methane. These propellants are highly efficient, but they're tricky to store and they can evaporate even at very low temperatures. Being able to more accurately measure spacecraft fuel levels will help scientists maximise resources. And mission managers were monitoring one of these gauges during the flight of intuitive machines Nova Sea Lander Odysseus. The principal investigator for the Radio Frequency Mass Gauge Project, Greg Zimley from NASA's Glenn Research Center in Cleveland, Ohio, says the new system uses radio waves and antennae in the tank to measure how much propellant is available. While smaller-scale experiments of the system have already been conducted on the International Space Station and during parabolic flights in aircraft on Earth, this was the first long-duration test on a standalone spacecraft. Zimli says the data he received during the mission will now be compared to simulations done on the ground. NASA has been working on ways to gauge propellants in tanks for over 50 years in the microgravity environment. Now we're going to test it on this lunar lander, so that's very exciting. I'm Greg Zimmerly, the principal investigator for the radio frequency mass gauge payload. This instrument is a space-age fuel gauge. We're going to use it to measure the amount of cryogenic propellant in the intuitive machine's Nova Sea lander propellant tanks. 
These propellants are very cold. They're at about minus 300 degrees Fahrenheit, and they're liquid oxygen and liquid methane. This is a technology developed at NASA Glenn Research Center. Previously, we tested this instrument on the International Space Station as an experiment to gauge a small cryogenic tank. Now, we're integrating the instrument onto an actual lunar lander. The purpose of integrating this instrument is to test it on a real spacecraft. Future lunar missions, like those in the Artemis program, will likely also use cryogenic propellants and have to store those propellants in space for long periods of time. So having an instrument like this that can measure the propellant in the tanks in low gravity will help future lunar missions know how much fuel is in the tank at all times. That's Principal Investigator for the Radio Frequency Mass Gauge Project, Greg Zimmerle from NASA's Glenn Research Center in Cleveland, Ohio. And this is space time. Still to come, an out-of-control spacecraft re-enters Earth's atmosphere on a suicide plunge. And Blue Origin unveils its new orbital launch vehicle, New Glenn, at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Base. All that and more still to come on Space Time. The European Space Agency's ARS-2 spacecraft is safely burnt up in the skies over the North Pacific Ocean following a fiery uncontrolled re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. The ARS-2 probe was ESA's second European remote sensing satellite launched almost 30 years ago, back in April 1995. Together with its almost identical twin ARS-1, it provided invaluable long-term data on Earth's land surfaces, its ocean temperatures, ozone layer and polar ice extent, information which revolutionised science's understanding of Earth's environment and how it's being affected by climate change. Having far exceeded its planned three-year mission, ESA decided to deorbit ARS-2 in 2011 in order to reduce the growing problem of space junk. And so mission managers began a long program to slowly deorbit the two-and-a-half-ton satellite over many years. ESA's mission managers say all the spacecraft's remaining fuel was depleted during the deorbiting phase in order to reduce the risk of an internal malfunction causing the satellite to break up into pieces while still at an altitude being used by active spacecraft. As a result, it wasn't possible to control ARS-2 at any point during its final re-entry, and so the only force driving it during its descent was unpredictable atmospheric drag. Still, this was the best option for disposing the satellite, given the way it was designed back in the 1980s. Nowadays, spacecraft are designed to be deorbited after use. Meanwhile, as ARS-2 continued its slow descent, by the start of this year, its fate had become sealed. Images taken between January the 14th and February 3rd show the satellite tumbling out of control towards the atmosphere at an altitude of around 300 kilometres. By the middle of February, it had passed below 200 kilometres and was now dropping by around 10 kilometres a day. Now at this altitude, atmospheric drag caused by molecules in the rarefied upper atmosphere of the Earth begin to buffet the spacecraft, causing a significant amount of orbital decay. Last week, as the spacecraft continued tumbling out of control, it began skipping along the upper atmosphere, almost like a surfboard rider. And at that stage, its final death plunge was imminent. 
Now, the exact point of re-entry couldn't be determined because the thickness of Earth's upper atmosphere tends to rise and fall, sort of like a jellyfish, as it's being pummeled by the ever-changing solar wind, the stream of charged particles flowing out from the sun. But last Wednesday morning at around 11.14am Australian Eastern Daylight Time, ERS-2 had hurtled below 80 kilometres in altitude, with the speed of its descent increasing rapidly. At this point, it began breaking apart and burning up, bringing its mission to a final end. The majority of pieces were destroyed during the descent, with only stainless steel and titanium components surviving all the way down to the planet's surface. No one was injured during the descent, and no property was damaged. So I guess you'd call that a happy ending, although probably not for the spacecraft. This is Space Time. Still to come, Blue Origin unveils its new orbital launch vehicle, the new Glenn. And later in the science report, major criticism for Google's new Gemini artificial intelligence after it was found to be rewriting history and showing anti-white bias. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Blue Origin have unveiled their new heavy lift launch vehicle, the new Glenn, at Cape Canaveral in Florida. The 98-metre-tall two-stage orbital rocket was carefully rolled out and then lifted into position for the first time at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station Space Launch Complex 36. It was the general public's first view of the new rocket, which will support a multitude of both private and government missions, including support for NASA's manned Artemis program, returning humans to the moon, and eventually onto Mars and beyond. In its two-stage configuration, New Glenn will be able to launch 45 tonnes into low Earth orbit and 13 tonnes into geostationary transfer orbit. Pad 36 had been specially rebuilt to handle the giant new rocket, which is slated to undertake its maiden test flight later this year. The rollout was designed to test and validate the vehicle's integration, transport, ground support and launch operations processes. The rocket will undertake several cryogenic fuel loading, pressure control and venting system tests in order to verify that both it and the launch pad and ground systems are ready for flight. These tests don't require any engines. They're being hot-fired tested at the historic 4670 test stand at Huntsville, Alabama and at Blue Origins Launch Site 1 in West Texas. Its first stage is powered by seven B-4 rocket engines and is designed to be reusable for at least 25 flights. The B-4 engines burn liquid oxygen and liquefied natural gas, which is a cleaner burning fuel with higher performance than conventional kerosene-based fuels. The expendable 7-metre-wide second stage is powered by two BE3 engines, similar to the ones used on Blue Origin's new Shepard suborbital launch vehicles, which are used for space tourism flights out of Texas. An optional third stage, powered by a single BE3 engine, is currently under design for future inclusion. Just as New Shepard was named after Alan Shepard, the first American to reach space, New Glenn is named in honour of John Glenn, the first American to orbit the Earth. This is Space Time. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. 
A new study has shown that microplastics are entering agricultural land through wastewater outflows. A report in the journal Water Research claims scientists found microplastics in 146 biosolid samples collected from 13 wastewater treatment plants across three Australian states, including four in New South Wales, four in South Australia and five in Queensland. The results revealed bioplastics containing up to 17 kilograms of microplastics per tonne, which could be transported to agricultural lands. Furthermore, the study also showed that every Australian was releasing between 0.7 and 21 grams of microplastics into wastewater every year, with New South Wales ranking the lowest and South Australia ranking the highest per capita for concentrations. Now, while on the subject of microplastics, scientists have discovered not only microplastics, but also a higher abundance of cellulose-based fibres in the intestine samples of four apex shark species caught off the coast of southeastern Queensland. The study, reported in the journal Chemosphere, marks the first investigation of microplastics and other anthropomorphic fibres in both intestine and muscle samples from white, tiger, bull and hammerhead sharks. The Australian government has issued a licence to commercially release QCAV4, a genetically modified variety of Cavendish bananas specially designed to help save the world's Cavendish banana production. Food Standards Australia and New Zealand have also confirmed that QCAV4 has now been approved for human consumption. The QCAV4 is the world's first genetically modified banana approved for commercial production and also the first Australian GM fruit approved for growing in Australia. It offers a potential safety net against the devastating Panama disease, Tropical Race 4, which has been threatening the $20 billion global banana industry. QCAV4 bananas have been grown in field trials across the Northern Territory for more than seven years, and they've proven to be highly resistant to Panama disease. Panama disease TR4 has already crippled Cavendish banana production in Asia. It started to take a foothold in South America and was also making inroads in both the Northern Territory and Northern Queensland. QCAV4 is a Cavendish Granean banana that's been bioengineered with a single banana-resistant gene, RGA2. RGA2 comes from a wild Southeast Asian banana. Now, mind you, Cavendish bananas do already contain the RGA2 gene, but it's dormant. At the moment, there are no plans to grow or sell QCAV4 bananas in Australia. It's simply there as a backup. The devastating Panama disease is caused by a soil-borne fungus that stays in the ground for more than 50 years. It wipes out banana crops and destroys farms for generations. About 95% of Australia's bananas are grown in Queensland, with Cavendish bananas accounting for 97% of all production. Well, Google were probably the biggest tech story this week. They've been forced to hit the pause button on their new Gemini artificial intelligence after it failed to produce factually accurate images of famous historical figures, instead showing white people as being either black or Asian. The internet giant's been pressured to admit publicly that its Gemini AI model missed the mark, following a landslide of criticism claiming it's trying to rewrite history with a leftist woke agenda and a racist anti-white bias. Users reported multiple cases of images of people of diverse ethnicities and genders, even though it was historically inaccurate to do so. For example, when asked to create an image of a Viking, Gemini showed exclusively black people in traditional Viking garb. 
It also generated misleading images of the Apollo 11 crew, Neil Armstrong, Edwin Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins, showing them to include a biological female and a black man. A founding father's request returned First Nations people in colonial outfits, while another depicted George Washington as being black. Google's Gemini AI is what many regard as a classic case of programming garbage in, garbage out. The chatbot, formerly known as Baird, has been plagued with problems of historically and factually inaccurate statements and poor fact-checking. Other AIs have also been found to be deceptive and to lie in order to manipulate people and to get around Are Your Robot capture tests online. A group of true psychic believers have provided a user's guide to identifying fraudulent psychics or mediums. Of course, the guide works on the phony assumption that some psychics are real, and the trick is finding the good ones. The simple truth is there is absolutely no scientific evidence to support clairvoyance of any kind. Still, if you're going down that road anyway, Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptic says, the guy provides a series of red flags to watch out for to avoid the bad psychics. This is an article which obviously believes in psychics. It says, quite frankly, that there are real psychics, but this is the way to spot the baddies. One is excessive use of fear tactics. In other words, you're under a curse and I will solve the curse, I will remove the curse, that sort of thing. That happens a lot and can be very expensive for the person, the victim, of that sort of thing. So watch out for someone who says, I'm going to scare you and you can have to pay me lots of money to fix Anyone who guarantees results, and this is common amongst many areas that the sceptics deal with, you talk to scientists and they're never 100% sure. Things might change. You talk to a psychic or whatever, a spoon bender or something, they're 100%. Some of them are soft-pedalling that a bit these days, but generally they're 100%. No one is 100% accurate, period, in the real world. And so anyone who says they are 100% accurate is a bing little red flag goes up. Exorbitant fees for special services. I'm not quite sure what exorbitant means. You vary the fees you pay for a psychic reading. But if they're adding on top extra fees, extra services, that sort of thing, especially for lifting curses again or resolving negative energies, if they suddenly find you've got a base price and everything else is contingencies, then you have to be careful of that, okay? Unsolicited emails or messages, well, we all get those from different people all the time, whether it's a psychic or whether it's sort of a scammer or a spam or whatever. So that's not particularly purely for psychics, but it's something to watch out for. No testimonials or reviews. That would surprise me, actually, because I think a lot of psychics would have testimonials yeah, and reviews. Yeah, I you know. thought so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, you see them quite a lot. They're not very well identified. Bill of so-and-so place says... I tend not you, to believe testimonials anyway, because I figure, especially if they're online, I figure most of them are written by the company that's carrying out the work anyway. So. It also depends on the system that you're using. If you're using an independent online review system, system, yeah. you can't delete a bad one. If you're just putting the ones up on your website that support you, that's a different issue. So if there's no testimonials, you'll think, well, no one likes them. Well, they didn't bother making them up. The thing is, there are strategies you can use. That, that's all the red flags. Then you can do things to verify authenticity. Again, that's to a sceptic who's sort of saying, eh, you assume they're authentic, therefore you've got to verify going in with the belief first and then trying to find the evidence for it. You check what reviews there are, if there are any, and you avoid high-pressure tactics standard for all salespeople, really. Question unrealistic promises. Well, you're talking about psychics and things, so you're already in the realm. He's unrealistic. That's That's right, yeah. You seek recommendations. Again, that's often the way the psychics 
get in touch with other people and how they learn about the background which they can then feed back to the client. So-and-so visits a psychic and says, oh, I should send my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law along to this. They're really looking for a solution to their problem, blah, blah, blah. And say, okay, send them along. And then when the, that person turns up, the psychic says, I see you have a problem solving this. That's amazing because they're already told. The best one here, you know, the best in quotes, strategy to verify authenticity is trust your intuition. This is your, I have a gut feeling that I know this person is a fake. Really? I mean, I always say, who's the best con man in the world? And the answer is no one knows because they're the best con man in the world. And so therefore, trusting your intuition. Intuition is a pretty unreliable mechanism to use in anything. Going into a psychic, you're already halfway committed, unless you're just going for fun. If you're going to a psychic for serious bit of advice and things, you're already committed, and they just have to reel you in. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. That's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel, and on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 